Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I am honored to be joined today by Alex Golovenko, pastor of the Windsor Seventh-day Adventist Church in Ontario, Canada. Thank you so much for talking with us all today. I'd like to talk to you about the Russian aggression in Ukraine. And as a Ukrainian, I'd love to hear how you're feeling about what you're seeing in the news and what you're hearing from fellow Ukrainians right now. Mm -hmm. um, there's that numbness of not wanting to do anything. Um, why bother doing anything? Uh, when you feel powerless to change anything, there comes this um, literally, I'm trying to understand if it's depression. I, I, as a person, I always like to do things, you know, and I never experienced this before, but I, I want to share this with you. Please. Um, in my church here, we have a lot of people from Rwanda. And for 28 years, they celebrate, commemorate rather, Kwibuka, the um, commemoration of genocide in Rwanda. And I remember being in Canada at that time already. I lived here for 30 years since 92. I never paid attention. I never heard of it until I came to pastor a church with a large Rwandan diaspora. And so I learned. I remember one person, John Ruhinda, sat me down and said, Pastor, you must watch this movie once uh, in April. And uh, I watched, and I was shocked. And I said, how come I never heard about it? I didn't know about it. The media here is very selective of what they release, what they allow people to see, and very manipulative. Mm. And so I'm comparing this with Rwanda because for 100 days, the West talked selectively but did nothing on the ground and people in rwanda were left alone only after it was kind of all done then we started saying we should we could and i'm comparing that to what's happening in ukraine it's been seven days one week since the war began and the frustration from my end is i don't feel anybody's doing anything i'm excited that united nations finally passed the resolution today about what an hour two hours ago Mm -hmm. And when I look at countries that voted against, I mean, well, it tells about that mm -hmm. Russia, Belarus, North Korea, Syria, and Eritrea. <laughs> These are the five countries that voted against. So if anything, that should give a perspective of what we're dealing here with. So yes, there's anger, there's frustration. Then there's this challenge. How do I feel toward my fellow Russians? I lived and worked in Russia from the age of 16. I served in military back in 88 through 90. I speak fluent Russian. And when I, as a Christian, look at Matthew 5, 39, where Jesus tells us not to resist an evil person, but turn the other cheek. Um, doesn't sit well with me. You see, so it's, it's my personal struggle, but then it's easy for me to talk. I'm here. Sure. But my brother-in-law, my sister, 
her two kids, her son is 21 years of age, mm. is there on the ground. And I'm realizing that probably good 15 plus thousand of Seventh-day Adventist men of the draft age in Ukraine are facing that predicament right now. Mm. And, and to say that, well, just go to the front line and show mercy and kindness. Easy to say if there would be front line. There is no front line. Mm. You see, was paratroopers dropped all kind of random places. There is no front line. But I don't want to be talking all the time. I'll let you ask more no. questions. Well, I appreciate how you're um, sharing so personally about how you're feeling. Can you talk a little bit about the Ukrainian church, what you know about it? Um, you know, it's about 43,000 members. It's basically half of the entire division. And, um, you know, what, 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 what sort of questions, you kind of alluded to it, but what sort of questions are our brothers and sisters there in Ukraine um, mm -hmm. dealing with right now? Right. Um, you are bringing very true statistics. It's about 43,044. It's hard to tell. And if you look at the statistics, uh, which are available online, the church membership has been declining uh, from 60,000 in 2010 to about 43,000 now because of the large immigration people are leaving with the lack of stability and economic downturn. And right now, with so many refugees fleeing, there would be even further drain of uh, church members from there. So I wouldn't be surprised that if statistics are taken at the end of this year, the, the membership would be down to, I don't know, 35 or so thousand because many Adventists are fleeing. Uh, you know, I mentioned this non-combatancy status. Sure, you could have the paper from your pastor that you are non-combatant conscientious objector. But from a person who is defending the country with the gun in his hands, he doesn't want to see that paper. He's going to rip it. And, and call you some strong words, you know, uh, for, for being a traitor. In fact, uh, two days ago, the uh, patriarch of Eastern Orthodox Church yeah. declared all men traitors who are trying to flee as refugees and technically excommunicated. He forbade the priest to serve communion to men who's refusing to engage in a draft, who are fleeing the draft. That is reality in Ukraine right now. Mm. Now, now, a general picture of Ukraine. Ukraine is a union of eight conferences. And you're right. Um, the members of Ukraine constitute probably more than half of total Eurasian division. Um, in fact, many pastors who serve in Russia are Ukrainian because Ukrainian is very religious and spiritual nation. The Adventism in Ukraine began in 1880s with the early European missionaries, especially Germans, working among the Mennonites. Uh, Ludwig Konradi mm -hmm. uh, was a great name and revered by many of that first and second generation. I remember my grandma telling me stories of Ludwig Konradi and how he visited their village and all that. And so Mennonites, pacifists, you know, that, that gives you the, the yeah, background. So, right. The Adventists were always pacifists. And with this war, it brings new challenge. There is over 1,000 congregations in Ukraine, uh, both churches and companies. And even as my sister and her family fleeing west, they were blessed because they're able to stop, take rest at different Adventist churches. 
So it's one big united family. They stayed at a particular city. I would not name, not to get them in trouble. Yeah. And uh, uh, the help is there. Church members, pastors, everyone is assisting, bringing food. Literally, most churches are 24-7 open, um, serving as shelters. Uh, let me add to it. I spoke with Anatoly Zalvaga. Uh, he... Uh, organized the Adventist College University there uh, near Kiev. And I asked him, because I've seen pictures of Bucha, that's the town that many would recognize whoever been there, has been destroyed. Most severe battles have been northwest of Kiev, mm -hmm. and Bucha has been really ravaged by, by shelling, by uh, street fights. And he told me that the four Seventh-day Adventist pastors that remain there, uh, students been evacuated, but the buildings of our seminary there, uh, dormitories, are used as shelters to house women and children from the buildings that been bombed out from for for those people who have nowhere to go, who are living on the front line. The Adventist seminary right now is a shelter for them. Mm. Well, thank you for telling me that you're breaking news here, which I um, am happy to hear. Let's get back to the moral question. I've been talking with some Adventists. They've written books on pacifism and nonviolence, and they're questioning their core values in light of the Russian aggression and the suffering of so many innocent Ukrainians. Uh, and they're making some space for some sort of, of um, violent response to what's happening, hoping that it doesn't, wouldn't come to that for an Adventist, but thinking that an Adventist might be justified in standing with their neighbors and, you know, making a Molotov cocktail, throwing a Molotov cocktail, picking up a gun and defending um, their, you know, sisters, mother, their land. You're a pastor. You work through moral issues every day, very difficult challenges. I'm just curious how you're thinking about these questions. It is a difficult, difficult question to answer. And so I would start with a little historical review. Um, you know, it's important to put things in context. Most Adventists know the date and aware that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was organized in 1863. But I don't think how many put that in historical perspective, that that was right in the middle of civil war. Mm -hmm. And if someone pays attention as to why we got organized, it's not just because James White needed to buy insurance for his printing operations. <laughs> the men were drafted to serve in the war yeah and early adventists objected to that they were paying 300 dollars uh, fee not to serve the church organized fundraisers to buy out members from service and the only way for us as a church to gain that official non-combatant status was to organize as a body so a major drive for us to organize in 1861 2 and 3 was the fact that the country was at war. In fact, Jane Andrews traveled to meet with US government in 64 
to get that non-combatant status. And so I, I'm emphasizing this because early Adventists were non-combatants. And that spirit was propagated in Germany, in, in Russia, all over Europe. Um, Adventist men would rather die than take a gun. Adventist men were jailed, were shot for not um, being willing to participate in military action. And you know well that this is what split the church. This is why reform movement began in Germany, right? Yeah. And the compromise took place. Um, I look, I spoke recently, literally a week ago in Sacramento to a Russian and Ukraine congregation. And I look up some of that data and uh, Adventists back then in 1920s, the official church leaders uh, were saying, and I'm quoting here, uh, the Adventist church in Romania says, doing military service and taking part in war does not involve a covenant with the world. It is not equivalent to taking sides with Babylon. You see? Mm. So we're trying to put theology there. Um, Yugoslavia says, according to Bible standard, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Adventist Christians must fulfill all their duties, including military duties. You see, mm -hmm. They conscientiously serve the army with weapons in time of peace as well as in time of war. Now, I find funniest is German statement. Conradi was still a president, and it's under his presidency that this was penned. Even in the middle of battle, the soldier can show Christian love toward the disarmed adversary. He uses kindness. And I'm saying, really? <laughs> really? First and Second World War, and we haven't learned anything? In the midst of the battle, you're going to show kindness to your enemy? Um, I served in the army myself. I'm a sergeant major mm. back in the days of Soviet Union. Sure. That was before I got baptized. That was before I gave my heart to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I'll leave you to fill the blanks. You know, have some stories. When, when emotions rage, the last thing you think is being kind to your enemy, you yeah. see. So, Conradi and the team are writing, toward the conquered, use mercy. Toward the prisoners, use compassion. That would be great if we would follow that model. But yeah. let's be real. In times of fighting, I don't think anybody's adequate. People become inadequate how they think, how they process in that anger. And so I don't have an answer. I, I tell you honestly, the only uh, counter thought that runs through my mind is defending other is more important than protecting self. Sure. So I will not take a um, weapon to defend myself. But when it comes to protecting others, innocent women, innocent children, protecting those who cannot protect themselves, I might as well be ready to lay down my life to defend the weak. But I'll leave this to theologians to sort it out more. And as you, you recognize, this has been unresolved for us for a century. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, can, you, can we talk maybe about collective action? You know, um, uh, we are parts. Uh, we are part of communities, uh, governments, and there. You you started out by talking about this sense of numbness, even depression. I think was your word. Feeling like the rest of the world really isn't doing what it can. And you know, when I've listened to Ukrainians, I'm 
in, I don't know, is it a, like a Ukrainian attitude to just be so certain? They, every single person I've heard it in the news says, we're going to win this. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> and it would be nice if the rest of the world would help us out a little bit more so we can save some time here. <laughs> so I, is there something, you know, is there, um, uh, is there some moral, is there a moral need for people to stand up and say, mm-hmm. we do have the, the means in the rest of at least the West that could be uh, deployed here that could save um, Ukrainians? Thank you for the question. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a political analyst of any kind, okay? Yeah, you're not on CNN. I'm just, sh- I'm just sharing as a private individual my thoughts yeah, here. please. And you are right. All Ukrainians are saying, yes, we will win. There is confidence, there is certainty, because we know our spirit. We know that we will not serve, we will not be slaves. Ukraine had been servant of Soviet communist regime under Russian dominance for about 70 years. Never again. People had enough. And if eight years ago, when Russia first invaded Crimea and Donetsk, Lugansk region, there was still some uncertainty as to how to respond, that is different now. The attitudes are different. Eight years later, the nation stands together. One thing that I would uh, challenge our listeners and whoever hears this eventually is check your sources. Don't buy into propaganda from the wrong sources. Putin is a deranged person who says one thing and does another. Same with Lavrov, same with, with all the government apparatus. He constantly flips the script and accuses others of what he's doing. Yeah, so, I don't know if you ever deal with narcissists who blames you for them abusing you. You see, I, I, you know, it's a literally David and Goliath scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched recently Lukashenko, the president, the self-declared uh, president uh, of Belarus, standing in front of a map and pointing to his generals that the reason he permitted Russia to invade Ukraine from his territory was to defend Belarus, because according to his intelligence, Ukraine was about to invade Belarus. I mean, that's laughable. What is that we need from Belarus? More potatoes? Like, really? Like, who cares? And yet, there are people who constantly invent the script. So my challenge, check your sources. Don't believe the propaganda, you see. Like, when they say that his goal is denazification, I'm trying to pronounce it. Like, what does it even mean? Our president is a Jew. Yeah. Okay. Yesterday, they bombed Babi Yar which is a collective memorial of all the Holocaust victims in Kiev. Yeah. Like, really? Bombing a cemetery is going to be proving what, you see? So people of Jewish descent around the world are raising their voices. Who's the real Nazi here? You know, who's the real fascist in this fight, you see? And when they say denazification, what do you mean? I'm a Ukrainian by nationality yes i'm canadian but deep in my heart i mean if i were to turn my car my boys who were born and raised in canada who never been in ukraine they're flying ukrainian flags in their vehicles right now oh you see so we we still have those ethnic connections and those roots so uh, putin wants to erase ukrainian nation off the map it seems that's his goal you know 
we have a right to be Ukrainians. We have a right to speak our language, to sing our songs. And as people, we don't love to fight. We'd rather sing and make love. But if you push, if you push, you know, so I, I know that Ukraine will stand up and Ukraine will not only survive, but do well. But I would add this. Um, and I think all Western viewers who've watched last days seen the fear uh, that Russia lives in. Um, you remember Narishkin? Uh, he's director of Foreign Intelligence Service. He was mumbling there. He didn't know how to respond to Putin. It was embarrassing. Yeah. And this guy who comes from uh, elite, I mean, his family goes three, four hundred years of, of royalty and, and so on. One of his great, great aunts was uh, Tsarita. She was the wife of a king and so on. And he's fumbling there before Putin. They live in fear. Mm. But there's one more thing I'm going to throw. And this is my personal understanding of theology. Russia will be no more. I don't know how long it will take, but Russia as a state will fall apart. It's a federated state, and that federated state will fall apart because the world will move toward one polarity. And looking prophetically, it will not be dominated by Russia. So, um, you know, Russian nostalgic looking back to empire they were 100 years ago and 200 years ago is just a last desperate attempt for something that will never be. Well, I really appreciate you speaking so um, authentically here. And I'm curious because you are a leader of a community. You've been watching Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, lead his people. And I think a lot of folks around the world have been really impressed with the, the way that he is inspiring his he, he's inspiring action and he's also um, communicating the views of his people to the wider world and I'm just curious uh, from a leadership standpoint how do you feel about Zelensky well I would say his leadership is exemplary even to us as spiritual leaders he practices what's called shared leadership. Hmm. He's the guy who would sit on the front line and share a meal with soldiers in a trench. He's that kind of a leader. You know, uh, a picture recently came out, and it's a meme immediately, where Putin sits at the table so far removed from all yeah. his advisors, uh -huh. whereas Zelensky is hugging two soldiers and eating together. And that's the kind of leadership that we need even in the church being in trenches sharing together you know when he started presidency in his speech he said you all are presidents and that's kind of shocking saying but he called every citizen to say you have responsibility for the well-being of this country you see and that is that shared leadership attitude that is that of christ i'm not here to boss you i'm not here to order you I'm here to serve you. And if we serve one another, that's the kind of leadership that we um, want to see. And it's sad that he is target number one for Putin and his regime. That even all the attacks against Kiev are geared to remove him as the president and to install Putin's puppets regime. And that's really sad.
yeah. just thinking of the people who've been removed from power in the past, you know, um, I, I really pray that God would not permit uh, those uh, to, to come back to power in Ukraine ever. Yeah. Well, I've really appreciated hearing you uh, share your thoughts. Um, I need a word of hope, and you're a pastor. So for our listeners, can you share in the midst of all these questions and, and the, the sort of um, fog of war, what's giving you hope uh, as you're looking at this? Uh, I don't mean a sort of false hope or a sort of Pollyanna. What's, what's keeping you going as you are talking to people in Ukraine and thinking about the future of, of not just a a, a nation, but of the kind of spirit of humanity that the Ukrainians are are witnessing um, to us uh, all around the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I appreciate the question because it causes me to reflect and to think. Tonight, I'm holding a prayer meeting at my church, praying not only for Ukraine, but for Russia, because we're instructed to pray for the enemies to pray for those who um, who unjustly assault and accuse and we ought to pray for them too so we'll be praying both for ukraine and russia we'll be praying that god will remove the leaders that are so oppressive but at the same time we're hearing miracle stories we're hearing stories of divine intervention already where God protects the people. Uh, you've probably seen that uh, picture of a man minding his business, driving little Zhihuli Lada, and the tank decided to just serve and roll over him. I don't know if you've seen mm, that video. Yeah, yeah. And that man survived. Now, tank not only rolled over him, sat on him for a while, and then backed up, and the man survived. You see, so we've seen miracles of God's protection and God's intervention. Um, my sister told me a story. Um, again, I'm not going to repeat because they're still not safe. They're still in Ukraine. They were not able to cross to a country that they're hoping to cross. Um, but she's telling me miracle stories where God closes the eyes to certain people that they would not even notice them. They were able to move through some blog posts without even being noticed, you see. But <laughs> Psalm 121 is my psalm to go to. I look up to God alone because strength comes from him. As much as I respect Ukraine president and, and the army for what they're doing, I also pray that this spirit of fear will not turn into a spirit of hatred you see that love of god would prevail even over the human spirit of fear that it would cast out the spirit of fear that even those who are fighting on the front lines it would be love for their fellow citizens love for freedom love for life love for truth that would be guiding them more than hatred toward the enemy, you see. And so remembering that our strength comes from God gives strength, you see. Yeah. And with this comes the promise that God would not let our food stumble. He's the guardian who doesn't sleep. You know, through the time of war, 
um, sleeplessness is the biggest curse. Um, some people just can't sleep, worrying. And when you're depri deprived of sleep, you are not making good decisions, right? Oh. And so this is where trusting that it's okay to fall asleep. God will wake you up. It's his will. Just living in that attitude of surrendering and trusting God. It's his will after all, you see. That's what's important, you see. God never dozes off. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He watches over us. And so knowing he is the guardian, uh, we pray with my kids, with my wife, with my mother who's here. Uh, we lost my dad. And I'm saying to mom, it's good that dad is asleep, that he doesn't know because he would be worried about his daughter and, and uh, the family. And coming together as one big family, I would say that's important right now. You know, I have a lot of cousins because our family immigrated to U.S. and Canada in three waves um, uh, through the past century. And I have a lot of cousins that we've been disconnected. Now through this, they're all reaching out on Messenger, Facebook. They're trying to figure out how we related, you know, who was the sister and grandmother and all that. So I find that this is bringing us closer together in that caring for one another and that's important and so again my message to to my fellow ukrainians to russians to to all let's turn to god in this time and let's make sure that god's presence and not any loyalties or allegiance to any human power that we're guided by especially as we claim christ to, to be our older brother and I love Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yeah. We may hold the visa of Canada or visa of Ukraine, but our citizenship, our passport is a heavenly one. And speaking of visa, I really hope that Canada lifts up this visa requirement that the refugees from Ukraine could just board a plane wherever they are, Hungary, Romania, Czech Republic, and just fly over here that the families could help. I don't know if you're aware, uh, about 3 to 4% of Canadian population are of Ukrainian descent. I didn't know that. So that means here in Canada, we have anywhere between 1.5 to 2 million people who are of Ukrainian descent. By the way, Alex Trebek, I don't know if you remember the guy from commercial. Legend. He's a Ukrainian. He's a Ukrainian guy, you see. So there is a lot of Ukrainians in Canada. And so we're praying that our liberal government, Trudeau and the rest, will lift that. They had a vote yesterday at Parliament, and all parties voted to uh, temporarily lift the ban on Ukrainian uh, entry so they could have no visa entry. But our liberal government, so pray for them to pray that God would give them a little semblance of reason that the hypocrisy would stop sure because the worst thing is saying one thing and doing the opposite you know one thing is say we're welcome refugees but no no we require visa yeah so well thank you so much for um being a pastor in this moment um i appreciate you giving us spiritual insight political insight into what's happening and most importantly i I want to let you know, I personally am wishing uh, the best here and looking for ways to act to um, 
to mm-hmm. be a, uh, a part of the Christian community and, and put it beyond just prayer into doing something to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your time. And do offer a prayer for Ukraine. Pray for us. Pray for me that I would have my mind straight how to respond to the challenges. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.